Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back. This week, we are going back to the APTA fact sheets as some additional ones have been added for your reading pleasure. These are a bit of a mixed bag of information. We didn't specifically organize them to fit with other episode content because they were added after we had already planned our season a bit. So pardon the randomness, but the information is valid and you can always bookmark these episodes to better fit your study plan or use them as a final review. Let's get started with school transportation for children with special needs. This document is designed to be a resource for school-based physical therapists seeking general information on school-based transportation services for students with special needs. What does the law say? Federal and state legislation mandates the provision of transportation services to students with special needs as a related service through the Individualized Education Program, or a 504 plan. Students in public schools are eligible for transportation services if required to access free and appropriate public education. The Individuals with Disabilities Act mandates transportation services, and the Code of Federal Regulations details their scope as a related service. Services that involve transportation include travel to and from school and between schools, travel in and around school buildings, and or specialized equipment such as adapted buses, lifts, and ramps, if required to provide special transportation for a child with a disability. Furthermore, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 also mandates transportation services. The Code of Federal Regulations pertaining to non-discrimination on the basis of disability in preschool, elementary, and secondary education lists transportation as a non-academic service. Additionally, the Code of Federal Regulations explicitly includes transportation as necessary to access all aspects of a free appropriate public education in preschool, elementary, and secondary setting, regardless of location. So who implements these laws? 
transportation service needs are determined, addressed, documented, and implemented by the IEP 504 team. Moving on to the role of the physical therapist in supporting the transportation needs. The therapist will evaluate students and their ability to physically access transportation. They will identify appropriate equipment, accommodations, and or goal areas related to transportation to be addressed in the IEP 504 plan. They can ensure safe vehicle access and assist in ensuring student safety while riding in those vehicles. They may be responsible for ongoing equipment, review or monitoring, and assist in identifying temporary backup options when usual equipment is absent, unavailable, or unsafe. As always, the therapist has a role in promoting student independence and self-determination in accessing transportation. Another important role is staff training for emergency evacuations. The therapist may need to provide direct intervention and or consultation related to accessing school-based and or public transportation services on the IEP 504 goals. There are more specific tasks related to transportation that can be delegated, things like locating tie-downs and lap shoulder belts and appropriate securement methods for equipment, things that assure safety during transportation. The fact sheet ends with some key takeaways, which include legally school districts must provide transportation for access to free appropriate education within the least restrictive environment for students with special needs, including mobility impairments. PTs can serve as the qualified personnel trained to assess student impairments impacting participation in school-based transportation to provide recommendations for equipment that may facilitate participation in school-based transportation and to train appropriate staff members on the safe provision of physical assistance and use of mobility and positioning related equipment. Also, they may need to provide direct services to address specific mobility or accessibility needs related to the goals. Appendix A on this document has a wonderful physical therapy transportation checklist that is definitely worth a review. I'm guessing that school-based services will be a challenging area for those who do not work or have not worked in the school system. Our group was so lucky to have Sarah because she was our go-to on school information. The school stuff is challenging because it's so different than other areas of pediatric therapy. You really have to know the laws and you have to be careful because different states are different. So understanding the federal laws are important. These fact sheets on school-based therapy are definitely worth your time. Moving on to another new fact sheet titled Transition to Adulthood Guidelines for Patients with Neuromuscular Disorders. In the past, many chronic congenital or genetic diseases were considered childhood diseases, but that is no longer the case because life expectancy has increased and now these childhood conditions are requiring management into adulthood. This is still a challenging transition for a lot of people and there is definite room for improvement here. This fact sheet aims to share evidence-based guidelines for supporting that transition from pediatric healthcare, which includes physical therapy. This fact sheet specifically addresses neuromuscular disorders, so things like muscular dystrophy, spinal muscle atrophy, Charcot-Marie Tooth, Frederick's ataxia, mitochondrial myopathies, metabolic myopathies, juvenile dermomyositis, and cerebral palsy, among others. 
These childhood onset diseases persist beyond childhood and require proper support, resources, and transition planning. Healthcare transition is the purposeful planned movement of adolescents and young adults with chronic physical and medical conditions from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare providers, programs, and facilities. The fact sheet does make the distinction between healthcare transition and transfer of care. It states that the transition process is dynamic, multifaceted, multi-staged, and active, and involves components like medical, psychosocial, educational, or vocational needs. Transfer of care is more of a single event where responsibility of care shifts from one provider to another. Transition of healthcare is a longer process for sure. The fact sheet outlines a lot of the barriers to transition. I'm sure we can easily think of some of the barriers, like the challenge of letting go of a longstanding relationship and emotional attachments to their pediatric healthcare providers and the comfort of their known pediatric environment. I think a common barrier that we can all understand is the lack of available adult providers and or providers who have inadequate training in adolescent medicine or have the knowledge about congenital childhood onset conditions such as neuromuscular disorders. Do they understand the disease progression or the needs that these adolescents or adults require? There is also general differences between pediatric and adult models of care. Adult care is less interdisciplinary, more fragmented, and more symptom disease focused, while pediatric care can be more comprehensive and family oriented. The fact sheet then goes on to outline what a successful transition would look like. It states that a successful transition should empower the patient, improve the transition, and optimize the patient experience. It then outlines several goals of transition, including things like preparing the youth to understand their illness and take responsibility for self-management, empowering patients to function as independently as possible in an adult-oriented medicine and healthcare setting, identify appropriate adult healthcare providers available for that transfer of care, and communicate effectively and demonstrate self-advocacy with providers. The fact sheet then outlines proposed transition guidelines in phases. It proposes three phases before transition to adulthood can be considered complete. Phase one is early awareness of transition planning and occurs prior to 13 years. Phase two is an annual review and identification of an adult provider happening somewhere between 14 and 18 years old. And then phase three is the transfer completion and orientation into adult care, which is somewhere between 18 and 21 years old. These phases are provided with additional details on the fact sheet. What I gather from this fact sheet is that starting early is always the best option when it comes to transitioning healthcare services from a child to an adult. A side note too with the transition as well, when you get into studying the school-based therapy, you will see that there are, are two different types of transition. There's transition from pediatric healthcare into adult healthcare, which is exactly what Sheila was just talking about. And then you'll also see transitioning within the school environment, transitioning as it regards um, an IEP. Those ages are different. Um, like Sheila said, that transition from the pediatric care to adult care 
usually happens at 13 years old is when they kind of start that. And then in school, it's like, I think legally at 16 is when they need to start. Um, but a lot of schools will start that beforehand, just so you can differentiate between the two different types of transitions. The next fact sheet that we're going to go over is the appropriate use of gender pronouns in pediatric physical therapy practice and medical documentation. The use of outdated or offensive language and intentional misgendering and communication should be addressed immediately. Appropriate acknowledgement, documentation, and implementation of evidence-based practice based on a child's age, pubertal stage, physical transitions, and family culture are essential steps to improve therapy outcomes. Pediatric physical therapists play an important role in providing care for children and their families. Thus, we should be using appropriate documentation and communication that is culturally sensitive and fosters a safe, inclusive environment. Let's start by going through some terminology. Sex is assigned at birth, male or female, and typically assesses physical characteristics. Gender is a socially constructed set of roles and behaviors given to individuals. Gender identity is what a person believes their gender to be. Gender expression is how an individual expresses their gender identity through behaviors and mannerisms, apparel, etc. Cisgender describes an individual whose sense of gender identity is consistent with the culturally relevant role and characteristics of their sex assigned at birth. Non-binary refers to someone who does not exclusively identify with the gender binary. Transgender refers to individuals whose gender identity is not consistent with the sex assigned at birth. Gender nonconforming is related to someone whose identity and or expression does not follow societal slash cultural norms and expectations. Queer is an umbrella term that can denote identification with the LGBTQ plus community, gender nonconforming, and or an identity slash attraction that may or may not fall under conventional definitions. So next, this fact sheet goes over two different sets of gender pronouns. I'm going to be very transparent here that some of these terms are new for me, so I apologize if I pronounce them incorrectly, but I'm going to do my best. Traditional pronouns include she, her, hers, they, them, theirs, and he, him, his. Neo pronouns are more gender neutral and include, but not limited to, they, them, zir, zer, z, her, zer, hers, zers, fe, fair, fares, and a, m, heirs. It is important to ask, respect, and use other pronouns because they cannot be inferred. While documenting, it is important to document with the SOAP note the gender pronoun of the individual. They should refer to and talk to the parent about the pronouns as necessary, but also respect the wishes of the child if they are old enough. Proper acknowledgement, documentation, and communication about gender identity fields are important to incorporate into the practice for youth and families. Just from some personal experience, one of my friends who identifies as she, they, expressed to me that if you are a cisgender 
individual, if you offer up your pronouns first, that it can make it a more comfortable experience for somebody who maybe is does not identify um, with their assigned sex at birth and just kind of open that conversation in a positive way. Next, we're going to go over the physical therapist's role in promoting sleep safe for newborns, NICU to home. Again, we apologize for the randomness, but these were just the fact sheets that came out after we had planned our episodes for this year. This fact sheet takes the time to explain the physical therapist's role in promoting sleep safe habits for newborns. According to the fact sheet, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all infants be placed to sleep in a manner that reduces the risk of SIDS. The guidelines can be summarized as A, B, C, alone, back, crib, and include removing soft bedding, bumpers, or other objects from the sleep space, place the infant in a supine position, and use a firm sleep surface that is separate from the parent's sleep surface, but in the same room. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that hospitalized infants should be kept predominantly in the supine position, at least from the postmenstrual age of 32 weeks onward, so that they become acclimated to supine sleeping before discharge. PTs need to understand, support, and comply with the sleep safe guidelines and abide by institutional safe sleep policies. The fact sheet then goes through some sleep safe policies and education. Sleep safe policies help to decrease the risk of cranial deformity, cervical lordosis, asymmetrical head posture, shoulder elevation and retraction, and hip abduction or external rotation. The chart then goes on to explain sleep safe policy considerations to reduce the risk of secondary impairments. First, there should be a transitional period of decreasing time in sideline and prone positions and increasing time in the supine position with some positioning devices. Next, supplemental recommendations for positioning and handling once the infant has transitioned to sleep safe is recommended. Third, medical exceptions to sleep safe at less than 32 weeks postmenstrual age must be defined and agreed to by the neonatology team. Next, the fact sheet goes over sleep safe education for NICU staff. NICU staff should serve as knowledge brokers for new and revised policies, address specific concerns and barriers to supine sleep through evidence and advice, teach strategies to avoid secondary impairments associated with supine sleeping, and assist staff to implement specific strategies with individual infants. The fact sheet then goes into recommendations on education for families. Some education includes proper use of wearable blankets and swaddle blankets, how to use a variety of play positions and caring slash handling techniques during daily routines, and how to implement awake time in prone. We recommend going and taking a look at this chart for additional suggestions to provide to families. As the child transitions to home, some unsafe practices commonly seen in home environments include propping infants in U-shaped pillows during sleep, positioning infants during supervised naps, and bed sharing. There are also a few others listed on the fact sheet, so we recommend taking a look. 
PT should continue to provide education on best practices for positioning during sleep and awake slash playtimes. They should also support families who are caring for infants that do not sleep soundly. So thank you for joining us on this random episode of information. Again, the EPTA fact sheets are important. You need to know them all. We cannot stress this enough. We will see you next time and happy studying. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.